Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing wonderful, Sarah. Yourself? Not too bad. It's a lovely day out, and we have another lovely guest. That's always a good thing, right? It is. It is. So what do we got going on today? So today we have Dr. Gonzalo Beerman from VCU. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be with both of you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. We're getting places, people from all over the place now. Yeah. We haven't had anybody from Virginia before, have we? I don't think we have. But we oh, had. This, this is a Virginia ahead. debut. Virginia debut. This is it. We've uh, had, we've had somebody from New York, from Georgia, from Colorado, from California. Um, where else? A lot from Nebraska. A lot from Nebraska. We're trying yeah. to get together a mobile dirty drinks kind of tour van so that we can go around and actually meet the people that we talk to. Because I think that would be great, but we have to find some grant funding for that. And we haven't been able to scrounge that up yet. Well, when you do, make sure to print up some t-shirts with all the stops on the back. Definitely. Be be like, a, like a band, like a like concert a tour, tour. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. That awesome. would be great. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. So um, let's start with a little bit of introduction. Would you like to tell our listeners um, a little bit about where you're at right now and what your role is? Yeah, so I'm Gonzalo Berman. I'm at the Medical College of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. I've been here since 2003. Uh, so soon I'll be starting my 20th year here. And um, I serve the university as the chief of infectious disease. I also was in healthcare epidemiology here for at least 18 years. And uh, I'm also university related, but a little bit uh, independent of that is I serve the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America as the Editor-in-Chief of ASHI or Antimicrobial Stewardship Healthcare Epidemiology. So that's pretty much what I'm doing here. I'm really enjoying it still. I still find a lot of joy on the day-to-day, -day, so that's good. And that's awesome. in Richmond? In Richmond, Virginia, correct. Yeah. I haven't spent too much time in Virginia. Uh, were you from there originally or, or how'd you end up there in Richmond? No, I'm actually, I was born in Argentina, but raised in Argentina in the United States in New York State. So I came to Virginia in 2003 at the end of my training in New York State. From, uh, so I was, came here from Cornell University where I'd done my fellowships. Oh, very cool. Did you always want to know that you wanted to get into medicine? Like well, you know, I, I can't, I can't give you a great story that like I was a trailblazer in the family. <laughs> I think I'm the fifth doctor in the family. So, uh, you know, I didn't really blaze a new trail. It's, uh, but, but I always had a passion for it and I always had a respect for it. And I thought that, um, that it would be a good career choice for, for me. And, and fortunately it was. I kind of, everything kind of evolved going to medicine, not knowing really what happened next and then going into internal medicine and then infectious disease and public health. It's a little bit of a journey, but it wasn't always clearly defined. Where from in Argentina? Uh, Cordoba. Are you, are you familiar with Argentina? Uh, just a big, big areas is about it. Buenos Aires is what you're thinking of. Yeah. And then Iguazu Falls and stuff. Oh, you've been to Iguazu? 
I have not, but I'd love to. I obviously said it wrong because I'm an American, but. <laughs> Just be careful of those little coatis, those little, those little uh, creatures that are all over the falls or tend to bite people. Do they really? Yeah, I think they might be in the, in the zoos. Uh, I heard of them being zoos here in the United States. You might even have one in the local zoo in Nebraska. Oh, it looks amazing. It looks super cool, like a great place to go see. It's much bigger than Niagara Falls. And uh, it's also still a state park on both the Brazilian and the Argentine sides. So with that in mind, you don't have a lot of development around it. So that's kind of cool. You know, uh, there's no casinos or that kind of stuff right on the falls. So you still get a kind of a tropical experience walking through the park and going up to the falls. Do they have a way that you can see it from air? Can you like be in a helicopter or something? Or Maybe you can do that too. That would be so amazing. Yeah. That'd be very cool. <laughs> we need an international edition. We do. So we can definitely. Go explore. <laughs> you, you could broadcast from Iguazu Falls. There you go. Good. I'd do All that. Right. <laughs> Sounds great. So many ideas. Um, medicine was in your family, but did you always know you wanted to get into infectious diseases and public health? No, I mean, all that was kind of new for me. I, truth is, I, I, I went into medicine uh, not being all that sophisticated. I just kind of went from high school to college and, you know, I enjoyed uh, the studying in college. I was getting decent grades. I was a college soccer player, so I was really focused on that, too. And uh, when it was time to, as college was wrapping up, I'm like, I got to do something next. So I applied to medical school and was fortunate enough to get was accepted in a couple of medical schools in the state of New York. So I had an option, but I went there not really having a real understanding of public health or infectious disease. And that just kind of evolved over my time at the University of Buffalo where I, went to where I attended medical school. So having meeting cool people, coming across new opportunities. And if I could tell you a quick story, I think, do we have time? For a quick story? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. please, please. So when I was in between my first and second year of medical school, uh, this is in 1993, 94, you know, there, I was in the student union at the University of Buffalo. And, you know, those times when someone's looking for a summer job, they have stuff tacked onto the bulletin board with a little telephone number that you pull off the call. Well, it says uh, the Center for Urban Research in Primary Care at the University of Buffalo is looking for medical students, paid research assistants, et cetera, et cetera. You must be able to speak Spanish and be willing to do surveys, you know, door to door, house to house in the city of Buffalo. And I answered that, I called that number. It was really my first experience into something that was considered a public health epidemiology project. The professor involved then was an MD, PhD, or still is. I think he's now at Case Western Reserve or something like that. And he was studying asthma in inner city Buffalo with a lot of door-to-door -door interviews and spirometry tests, et cetera, et cetera. And this had been ongoing for years and already had a publication. This is a follow-up. So I joined a research team with epidemiologists on it, MPH individuals, et cetera, et cetera, for the summer. It really opened my eyes to that you can actually do a practice or not so much practice, but look at medicine from a population level and not so much from that of a, uh, an individual, doctor, patient, person to person level, and look at issues from a public health perspective, study it, publish papers which can impact policy and change practice. So I thought that was really neat. So that was my entrance into public health. That's Very pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Before we get into too much serious stuff, I, uh, soccer player, I just saw Messi just scored five goals. That is in true. One, in, in one game. That's amazing. Against, against Estonia, perhaps not the most rigid competition. Perhaps not, but still five goals is, uh, you know, that's a career for most, for many people. <laughs> it's nothing to sneeze at. And then last week they beat Italy in the final. 
Yeah, you like know, three to nothing, right? Three nil in Wembley Stadium, so they're on a roll. Yeah, thirty-three games without a, a loss. That's uh, impressive. Let's Just in time going. for the World Cup, right? I guess what really matters are the eight games you play in the World Cup to get to the final. <laughs> there you Including go. the final. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So, um, so you started early at the University of uh, uh, New York in Buffalo. It sounds like or University right. of Buffalo, and uh, got in. So you kind of had a, your 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 feet wet a little bit, so to speak, in terms of public health and looking at population uh, risk and population uh, uh, health kind of type things. And so mm-hmm. then, uh, did you do anything like MPH or anything, or just do MD and then just kind of roll from there? So I kind of roll from there and. You know, I got some, this is, uh, th- this is really a plug for the importance of good mentoring. You know, when I was in, my first year of medical school was, it was pretty good. It wasn't great. I thought it was a bit of a downer. It was just a lot of classes and labs. And that was before they integrated the, um, the curriculum like they've done now. And it was like going to college part two, going to class all day and then taking exams every eight weeks. But my second year of medical school, we started studying pathology and then they had medical microbiology classes. And those, you know, I started coming out of my seat. It was really cool because it was being taught by, hey, these aren't just PhDs. There's a bunch of young, uh, uh, mid-career, younger-looking men and women who are physicians who happen to be infectious disease doctors talking about these bacteria and these, these parasites, sharing their experiences both there and around the world, treating infections, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was amazing. And I approached, at that time, the chief of infectious diseases, very welcoming. It's like, yeah, absolutely. You're a second-year med student reach out to me at the end of the year and spend some time with us. And that really opened my eyes to like what you can do as a practicing infectious disease specialist and meld that with public health or research or both. So it really opened my eyes to that. That was a really great mentorship experience. Very cool. What was your favorite part of those classes? You know, I think the favorite part of the classes was showing like these organisms and how they interacted with the human body and how they could be transmitted either human to human or from um, animals to human or for waterborne sources to human. I thought that was fascinating. And the thing that I thought was also super cool about it was that there were frequently really good therapies that you could use to treat people. And these therapies are generally, for most infectious diseases, we're talking about cures, right? For many of them. So I thought that was really amazing. And again, it has kind of a universal appeal to it. Even in wealthy first world countries, we still have infectious disease problems. It's not just a third world thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was attracted to do a similar type thing that, you know, that you ask a surgeon, you know, a chance to cut is a chance to cure kind of situation where with ID, we actually, unlike many internal medicine illnesses, right, that we kind of manage and palliate and mitigate over time, we can actually cure people and actually, you know, they see us, we treat them, they get cured they're done. I mean, and that's unusual in a lot of internal medicine specialties. And even in some chronic infections, such as HIV, which we know there's no cure, it's almost a functional cure if people can take their one pill once a day and remain undetectable with a viral load. It's not quite a cure, but it's as close as we're getting. It feels good. Way different from when I was in fellowship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of getting into infection control then, I mean, you've, you've done lots of work in infection control and epidemiology, hospital epidemiology. How, where did that come from changing from population dynamics to actually in a, in a hospital facility? Yeah, so that's really great. So I think what happened is that as I transitioned from being a student to a, a resident, again, I got really good mentorship. As a student, the, the advice is to continue to focus on your studies, get good grades so you can get the next best thing, which is the next best residency. 
And in residency, as I was looking for, for fellowships, it was like learn internal medicine, be a superstar on the wards, you get the best possible clinical training program. So when I got to a clinical training program in infectious disease at Cornell, it was like right, right, it's quite obvious to me after the first couple of months that I really liked the clinical consults. And then I looked at the kind of the menu or the panorama of what to focus on in years two and three, et cetera, et cetera. The clinical research that was epidemiology based was the most interesting to me, again, going back to my time in public health. And with that, that opened doors like with the healthcare infection prevention program, which is really epidemiology, as you know, but focusing on a hospital population instead of a city or a state or a region. And that also opened the door to going to the uh, Columbia University, because Cornell doesn't have a school of public health, going to Columbia University to get a master in public health degree. So it kind of all fell, to get, fell together, uh, fell in place, I should say, with great mentorship and individuals pointing me in the right direction. Again, not going there with a clear picture of this is what I was going to do. Had you always been a writer or did the, the publication of these things kind of just come about as a, a result of your scientific interest in things? So the only paper I had published before becoming a resident was the one I did as a medical student, which I didn't really publish it. They put my name on it, buried somewhere in the middle or more towards, <laughs> you know, as because I helped. But it was very generous as Dr. Dr. Kyan, the MD, PhD. He involved me and the other student, gave, let us look at the draft and give our two cents, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is cool. And I just couldn't believe it. Like this actually got published in a legit journal, you know, public health. And this is pretty cool. You see your name in print. And when I became a resident, I got to publish one more thing. So I was very light on publications when I got to Cornell University, which I thought was going to be a huge disadvantage. But I quickly learned that many programs, including the VCU program where I'm at, were looking just for talented young individuals who are enthusiastic. You know, if you have that talent and enthusiasm, you can kind of learn the process and credit the individuals, again, at Cornell for really pushing me to publish, giving me feedback, correcting me where I was going wrong, and encouraging me to submit. You know, I didn't have a huge number of positives, maybe seven or eight by the time I finished fellowship, but it's something, it's a start. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think getting that activation energy to just figure out that you can do it is one thing to have all the, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But to actually sit down and, and write through these papers and then, you know, deal with the corrections and try to get it published and everything else, it's a, it's a significant task. And it can be a little bit intimidating if you don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. And that's the job of the mentors to continue to kind of coach and, and, and cajole at times and really push you forward when you think you Aren't, uh, aren't up to the task. I, mean, I think with anything is, it's like with sport. If you win, it's easier to win more, right? It's like, so wins beget wins, publications beget more publications. You just got to keep going with it. And then you rope in or collaborate with as many talented people as possible. Usually the output is greater than the sum of the parts. Agreed. Very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm just getting started in my, uh, my publication journey, so. I'm very thankful for all of our, our teammates here at ICAP and Nebraska Medicine. For all I mean, that. I think that's great. Yeah. That's great. Always look for collaborations. I've Rarely does a collaboration make a project worse. It always <laughs> makes it better. That's yeah. I'm now I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling to find time. That's my big issue, but that's a different, different issue. Um, so go ahead. I was going to say, you say uh, the struggle to time for time is like universal and Maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but I always tell my team and my fellows and even faculty members, never un underestimate what you can accomplish in 15 minutes. 
15 minutes could be a super quick lit search. It could be a super quick abstract you write, or even a couple of par a paragraph or a couple of sentences to a paragraph. And then you come back to the next day when you have 15 minutes. And after 10 days, you've got something written, even if it's at 15 minute clips. Very good advice. Yeah. So then with your role as editor-in-chief for the ASHI Journal, yeah. how has that played into your writing skills and all of the publication? So I think that I've always been a bit of a nerd. I always had a book on me. So I kind of fell naturally into the whole idea of editing because it requires reading, right? And I, I, I'm one of those people, I'm also kind of somewhat obsessed about writing style. Now, I understand scientific writing is not fiction. So we're not, it's not freestyle, so to speak. But I do like to review articles, not only for content, but also for style. I enjoy that. that. And um, I don't find it tedious. I actually find it a lot of fun to review articles and to team up with individuals like reviewers or associate editors uh, to review projects and uh, articles and actually get them through the process. But what I also find exciting, actually, I should say I find more exciting, is commissioning really cool papers, like approaching investigators or epidemiologists or infectious disease specialists or experts in stewardship and public health and really working with them to identify something that they're excited in and, and getting that for the journal. I've, I generally have seen that if someone's excited about a topic or an issue or a, con or a controversy and they have a journal editor approaching them with a commissioned piece or requesting for a commission piece, they generally respond very positively. Now, most researchers want to you know, be seen and be heard. So this gives them an opportunity. And we look for things that are kind of cutting edge, sometimes controversial, maybe not ready for prime time in other journals, but ready to grow in our journal. So I think that's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, one thing, you, you know, is you talk about uh, mentorship a lot and everything else, which I think is tremendous. But one of the mm -hmm. things I remember is being that 22 year old kid and I have to go up and talk to somebody that's a Ph.D. or something that knows monumentally more than me at that moment in time has accomplished way more than obviously I have as a 22, 23 year old kid. What advice do you give people in going and, and, and approaching that mentor? How do they do it? How do they approach it? You know, obviously you have to have enthusiasm and interest and all that. But what kind of approach do you think works? best if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Dr. Bierman, I'd love to work with you. So I think enthusiasm is huge. If you see enthusiasm, that's a, that's a massive step forward. Number two, perseverance. If someone is not uh, immediately responding at that time, give it a little time and try again, a week, two weeks, whatever you think is appropriate. I think number three is if you have an idea in mind and bring that to a mentor, that can, that can impress people, particularly if it's like, hey, Dr. So-and-so, I have an idea in mind, and I've done a literature search already. I just did a PubMed search, and this is what I found. This is the question I think we should look into. Can we look into you know, studying this? That's, a, that's an open, opening the door for, um, for, a mentor, for a mentorship experience. A message I give to my staff or my faculty is we should never turn away anyone that has an interest in infectious disease, ever. Even if you're too busy, you say, I may not have an opportunity for you right now. Send it to the division chair, send it to the group. We don't want anyone to walk away from us saying, hey, I approached VCUID and they were not cool with me or they weren't interested. That is really not what we want. Whether it's even a clinical experience or a research experience, we want to have really an open door policy there. Really important. Do you have a, a vision for the future of your program? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> wow. 
Well, um, I guess the, the, the there's 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 kind of two levels. There's kind of the romantic level, and there's the reality. <laughs> the romantic level level is that everyone is fulfilled, has work-life integration, uh, is academically prosperous, and you know feels like they're part of the team. The reality is that not everyone is going to be at the same level of success at any given moment in time. So we want to work collectively as a group under the under, really under the um, the the concept that we're not just a bunch of physicians and nurse practitioners and support staff, et cetera, et cetera, working for an ID division. We're part of an extended family. And by being that, we are here to collaborate with each other so that all of us succeed in different levels, but collectively we succeed as a group. That includes clinical coverage, clinical cross coverage, collaborating with others. You know, if you're a PI, look for other people within the division that can go ahead and collaborate with you or be part of your projects. And then, of course, mentoring, and that mentoring is not just mentoring uh, students and residents, but mentoring each other. You know, there are associate professors that can mentor the assistants. There are the professors can mentor others, uh, met, met, mentor those below them. So it's really a collective uh, approach. And part of that pragmatic approach, and this is kind of getting into the nuts and bolts, and it's never, ever, all victories here are absolutely partial, okay, is we always have to seek relentlessly financial compensation or a model here that people feel valued. If few people don't feel valued, that's kind of the base of a lot of what we do. And that will erode the trust and the collaboration across this institution. So it's a combination of looking for kind of the real, the real pragmatic stuff, stable salaries, uh, incentives that are reasonable, et cetera, et cetera, recruiting recruitments that are reasonable and competitive, and then working after that to be collectively prosperous and not just focusing on individuals that's a long-winded answer no it's great a, it's a good answer good answer i mean you, you talk about collaborations i think you've got actually done a little bit of work with some of our colleagues here at unmc yeah. you did did one with dr rupp here recently on, on 60 years of infection control which is a fascinating topic i don't know yeah. how you how'd you guys pick 60 years and and how did that idea come about well i think the um I was sitting at a conference in Liverpool in the United Kingdom, and there was some cool, it was a cool historical perspective on infection prevention, very British heavy, you know, in the UK and start including Florence Nightingale, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought like, we should write something on like the top 10 papers in infection control. Well, top 10 papers become the top 15, became the top 20, became top 30. After that, we had to cut it off. And I think it was an arbitrary 60 after that. So 60 years, that is. So that's how we... Uh, how we got to that number. Um, in terms of people who I immediately thought of collaboration, of course, Mark Rupp. Uh, interesting factoid about Dr. Rupp, he's actually a graduate of VCU yes. uh, fellowship program. So he is. Claim yeah. him as one of ours. Very he's a Texan, though, so I don't know. He's a Texan, but we can still claim him <laughs> as a VCU graduate. So we're part of that. And then, of course, uh, Martin Kiernan from the United Kingdom. It, he's a really fascinating gentleman. He's involved in um, infection prevention for for quite some time now. He's actually a nurse, a nurse epidemiologist, very well polished, well connected in infection prevention circles in the UK, in the United Kingdom, and has a really cool podcast called Infection Control Matters. You might want to check that out. So um, we brought him in also because he has such a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the discipline of healthcare infection prevention. It's a pretty cool project. Did you write a um, certain part of it or did you kind of all collaborate on the whole thing or did you, yeah. how did you divide that up? 
we parsed out projects, uh, parsed out parts of it to the three of us. And it, it got, it picked up steam and then it lost steam during COVID. And then we have another, we have a first year ID fellow here who's really great. So she was kind of the, the saving grace of the whole thing. I'm like, all right, Laura, can you like put it all together now? <laughs> and, and Dr. Laura Peterson, who's the first author on that, is actually a first year ID fellow uh, who we're really proud of because Laura has been with us really since day one of med school. She's in med school at VCU, then internal medicine, and now infectious disease, a three-year fellowship. So we're really proud of her interest in the discipline and infection prevention. Yeah, that's awesome. Need somebody to keep moving it along, and fellows are great at doing that. Oh, yeah, especially when they're talented and full of energy. Yeah, yeah. What um, in infection prevention, uh, infection control, or whatever word we want to use nowadays, um, what kind of is your... Yeah, you've got lots of different publications in different fields, but what is your kind of your, do you see as your strength or your niche, the thing you're most interested in? With the niche that we had here at VCU, I never want to say mine, it's really been the group, right? Because you can't just be one person running it all. We've been really focused on historically going way back when we were looking at things like as um, horizontal infection control programs, bundled interventions, discontinuing contact precautions for MRSA endemic VRE, We've also looked at, uh, the, been involved in healthcare worker apparel as a potential transmission uh, as fomites in infection prevention. I work with Dr. Rupp actually on the Shea Expert Guidance on Healthcare Worker Apparel, which has already been dated it's from 2014, I believe. Um, and then we actually were one of the, wrote one of the first papers on the use of hand hygiene technologies, really a rather crude one in 2009 on hand hygiene technologies, a kind of a pilot concept that it could be done, it could be you know, done on a unit with some success. And since then, I've published some papers on that also. So I would say it's a combination of technology and pragmatic infection control interventions. Is what we're looking at. Very cool. How has the pandemic affected your um, research and publications? So both positively and negatively. Uh, in the negative sense, some of the clinical studies or things that we wanted to do had to put, put on the back burner because hard to do clinical research, at least infection control related research uh, as a trial, so to speak, during the pandemic. But we were able to publish on positive sense, some commentaries and perspectives and reflections on our experience in infection prevention, COVID-19, healthcare associated infections during COVID-19, uh, hand hygiene technologies during COVID-19, those kind of things got published. So there were smaller papers, but I think uh, with multiple small publications, you can say, oh, over those couple of years, there was something that was, uh, you, you had an experience that you can at least publish. What are you using for technologies and infection control? You mentioned that a couple of times. I'm just curious uh, what, yeah, you're, so the, what you're looking at. So the at. hand hygiene technology badges, um, the, those are one of them. They're the Ecolab ones. I think I've got one right here. I'll put that mm -hmm. on my badge when I go uh, to see patients. That's number one. We were one of the, I want to say the first, but one of the, one of the early adopters of UVC robots. Mm -hmm. UV light robots and you know we've what we've published on the UV light robots is more implementation science related it's one thing to say hey we bought like eight robots but how do you actually use them and use them with fidelity you know if you how do you actually get them to the rooms put them through the processes etc cetera, etc cetera. so we did that we published papers on that we published UV robots in the OR saying that they actually work to disinfect anesthesia stations using some biochemical sorry some um, molecular markers there too so um, you know, there was, that one was a smaller study, but it all adds to the body of literature of the technologies uh, in medicine. 
So the robots, are you doing them all term on all terminal cleans or certain rooms or how are how are you using the robots? So the ro yeah, so the robots are being used really for for uh, isolation precaution rooms. Mm -hmm. So like C diff or something. Exactly, else? MDR, gram negative rod, C diff seal, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Also, they get rotated. They cycle through the ORs. I think we have like thirty six ORs, and during the course of the week, they'll cycle through the ORs. It's not after every case because I would hold up the ORs, but during the course of the week, it cleaned the robots. Sorry, the rooms with the robots. I was going to ask you about delays with that because it obviously takes some time, as you said, to get the robot to the room and the robot to do its thing. So you you, you rotate it through. How about like the isolation rooms in the hospital? Does it make your turnaround time any different? Have you? Well, that was the big concern, you know, when we, we first got the purchase those robots years back and we had some growing pains with it. And in the paper that we published on the deployment of UVC robots, you basically have to have a dedicated team. And that's how it works is you have a dedicated team to do the UVC robots from, or people that are trained within environmental services to be UVC robot specialists. Uh, there is a discharge, there's a page that's triggered that initiates the process. And you know, the process starts to finish in about 40 to 45 minutes. So it does slow things down a little bit, but I think the benefits are probably greater than the harm. Yeah, it was interesting in times of COVID when hospitals were full. Did you get more pushback on not being able to do that with that 40 to 45 minute wait? Or was it still not too much of an issue? Uh, well, that got a little hairy for us. Yeah. <laughs> so the paper we wrote was pre-COVID. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. So hopefully that lessons learned pre-COVID are now still applicable moving forward as we get, I wouldn't say in a post-COVID world, but more of a uh, less aggressive COVID world. So as a, as a leader of your division, mm -hmm. um, how has the pandemic affected the leadership style that you've been promoting? Well, I think that what the pandemic has, has really taught us is the need for kind of flexibility in the way we, we lead uh, and also a greater respect for, I think, people's just overall well-being. I'm not saying that we didn't care before, but now we're probably more mindful of the importance of, an, of a team dynamic. And the team dynamic is very interesting because the team dynamic goes just beyond everyone thinking they're part of an extended family or a community of practice. But also it's important to create an atmosphere in which the team members can openly discuss things that are either grading them or bothering them or a barrier, not only with the boss, but with the group. And it's a place where we can have open discussions and really come up with a decision now now every decision is not made collectively but it's important to hear people right before you make a decision so even if they don't fully agree with your final decision at least you've done things in a way that are transparent open they know that the discussion was had they generally people will generally accept that so i thought that was very important now i think another thing that was really important for us is to really understand that um in in a team that's highly functional you really have to look at things like if something happens to one of us, it really happens to all of us. We have to be able to help each other and cross cover and be nimble. So despite having the best planning, an element of nimble responsiveness that's actually done because you care about the individuals and the team, it's gotta be woven into the fabric of the team culture. There's actually some cool studies on that that I learned, uh, that I, I saw. There's actually one called Project Aristotle. I think it's called Project Aristotle. It was, it was published in the New York Times. And um, basically what, they, the, what Google did is they, they, I think they studied, they hired someone to study like 100 plus Google Teams. And, and not all Google Teams function at the same level. So what they were looking at is like, what made a team the most 
functional and I guess um, I guess happy with what they were doing in, in their work. And what it came down to was not so much the composition of the team, really the dynamics of the team. So if the team could engage each other and the leaders allowed for that engagement and feedback and kind of were nimble, et cetera, et cetera, and address the day-to-day -day annoyances, then the teams tended to do better. So that was kind of cool. That was very cool. Do you feel like pretty... that that will carry on um, past the pandemic? I think it has to. I mean, if you really want to have a functional team, it's really more than just the people you have on the team. I actually just gave a, a grand round, not just, it was in February of this year, not too long ago. It was, um, it was one of those grand rounds that I kind of went out on a limb. I was kind of sick of talking about infectious disease and COVID or whatever. So I said, okay, the hell with it. I'll do something different this time, okay? So this time I decided to do give a grand rounds on, I wrote the top 10 lessons learned from a lifetime of watching and playing soccer musings on academic leadership. So I took 10 lessons from the soccer page that are completely applicable to, um, to the world of academic medicine. And one of them is that, number one, that the best soccer players don't make the best coaches, right? So the leaders, whether it's the division chair or department chair, doesn't necessarily have to be the best or most respected clinician or researcher. Someone who has enough qualities in both to understand and has to be able to communicate and really push a team dynamic that's that's positive. And the other one I thought was really important from that was the whole issue of, of the importance of team players. And I've noted that both in my time on a soccer field or even in an academic division, if you don't have a team player within your group, then that is probably the biggest cause of strife and rancor across the group. And it's the jobs of the coach or the division chair or department chair to identify those individuals and work with them so they integrate better within the team and the team dynamic stays intact. How big is your division there at uh, MCV and how many people are in it? And what all are you, are you covering? Did you have one main hospital, any other hospitals that you guys cover? Yeah, so we have one main hospital. The university hospital has about 800 something beds. There are a couple of community hospitals that the health system has purchased. We'll do consults there, but they're remote consults. Um, so those are lower volume. There is a children's hospital, just like you have in Nebraska, but we don't do that. That's a pediatric infectious disease team. I don't have any involvement there. Um, in terms of faculty, we're like 14 faculty total. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we have nurse practitioners. We have three in the clinic. We have transplant nurse practitioners. Uh, we have kind of dedicated teams. We have a transplant ID team, which is three doctors. We also have the musculoskeletal infections team, which is run by one doctor uh, with us cross covering when she's on a break or on a leave. And then we have an OPAT team, the outpatient antibiotic therapy team, which is a couple of nurses and a PharmD to help us with that. Then we have the HIV center or the clinic, which in Virginia, we're the biggest HIV center. It's 3,200 patients or something like that. So we have the nurse practitioners and the faculty over there. And of course, the Ryan White program also falls under the umbrella of the ID division. So it's a bit diverse. Uh, it's not the biggest division, but it's certainly not the smallest. Yeah, you sound like you're set up very much like we are here. Um, one of the things that we started doing is we started doing a community infectious disease team. So we actually go to a, a couple of smaller community hospitals in uh, in Omaha area. We also do telehealth to a couple mm -hmm. places out in the state. Are you guys involved using the technology for, for those kinds of things yeah, outside so of those two small community hospitals? Or So our two telehealth uh, contracts are basically for our community hospitals, the ones we own, and the other one is for the Department of Corrections. Oh, okay. So 
we are the kind of center for, we have the biggest contract for the Virginia Department of Corrections. So we have uh, actually have an entire uh, inmate unit here. It's like a regular ward, except it's like in the sub basement. And obviously it's, it's under a lot of security, but there are a lot of beds there. I think I'll say at least 30 beds or so, mm. along with the full clinic. But we also do the telehealth consults across the Commonwealth to the different infirmaries. Uh, a lot of that is for chronic HIV care, as well yeah. as medication management. Sounds yeah. like you probably do that too. Yeah, we do do some of that. We started doing the HIV stuff to some, a, a site not too long ago, and we do some inpatient and outpatient consults to central Nebraska and a couple of other places. So it's definitely one thing that we can leverage from the pandemic is the development of these technologies that allow our reach to be much greater than the number of physicians that we have that want to be in all those areas. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I'm super excited about that, too. We wrote a local editorial, newspaper editorial on the value of telehealth and why it should be continue to be funded and why payers should continue to like reimburse at least reasonably for telehealth. Otherwise, it's going to drop dead. Yeah, it will. And then those patients will just won't have care. Correct. So it's a public health service the way I see it. Agreed. Agreed. Accordingly. So um, one thing that we've talked to others about and everything else, I love it when people have a passion for infectious disease and infection prevention, um, which you clearly have. Um, how do we get young people to really want to do this? I mean, obviously there's a shortage of, of practitioners of infection prevention at most facilities. Um, we have a bunch of them at ICAP, but we've probably taken them from other facilities <laughs> that, you know, that, that then they have to fill their spot. But, but we need that enthusiasm amongst our young people. The, the changes that you guys described in your 60 years of you know, influential infectious infection control papers and everything else is amazing just to think back of what was done 50, 60 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But we obviously have ways to go and we need young people to, to care about this and be interested in this to keep pushing forward, right? Yeah, so I, I think one thing you alluded to is you can immediately fill your program by poaching from others. So, but that's not sustainable in the long-term, right? Right. So how, how do you expand that? I, I think if we go really, really far upstream, we have to take a look back at like how, how medical specialties are really, are, are distributed uh, across the country. And, and as you know, infectious disease is like what, 1% of all physicians? Yeah, very small. Yeah. And then healthcare epidemiologists are probably like 10% of 1%, if that, so that's even small. So um, one thing would be as we have to, there should be incentives for, for individuals to seek specialties uh, such as infectious disease, rheumatology, and lower pain specialties. Uh, by ways of maybe loan forgiveness or something clever to make it less punishing in terms of loan, loan repayments. And that, as you know, that drives a lot of people's choices in medicine. Number two, I think that we as infectious disease doctors and role models uh, and infectious disease um, epidemiologists should be role models and really, really be super enthusiastic when learners show any interest in infectious disease so that we continue to engage them and uh, hopefully hopefully convince them that infectious disease is a, is a viable and a good, a good choice and career. Number three, I think that we, as, um, as, as infectious disease doctors, sometimes are not aggressive enough in marketing the value of what we do. Does that make sense? Yeah, we do provide value. Maybe that value is an immediate like dollars and cents, but there are things that we can do to improve that we, we do for the health of individuals who have impact on health systems, decrease lanes of stay, decrease readmissions, et cetera. So decreasing healthcare associated infections. 
you know, really, really um, create a greater awareness of these, of these impacts that go just beyond the doctor-patient one-on-one relationship. So there are many ways we could tackle this. Yeah, I think we really have had a hard time objectifying those things. I mean, you look at different measures and we usually we're on a case and we're not the only person on the case, right? So um, how much impact does the infectious disease doc have on some of these things? And obviously, I think with the development of antimicrobial stewardship programs, you've been able to see a dollars and cents change with using less antibiotics, right? I mean, that's something that it's pretty easy to see, but the impact on things like you said, readmissions or relapse rates or earlier discharges because they get on appropriate antibiotics early on, those are a little bit harder to convince uh, somebody in administration that, yeah, this is ID doing this. Yeah. And I also think that like, well, with with the current pandemic, the number of applicants for fellowships for ID has gone up. So someone's interested, right? It sparked an interest that's very exciting, but I also think that we should we shouldn't be shy, you know, in medical school curriculums, and we know the curriculums are tight when it comes to infection and immunity classes, et cetera, et cetera. We should be talking or we should be saying, listen, we're the infectious disease service. Give us lectures. We want to talk about this. Give us a couple of dedicated lectures in healthcare infection prevention and stewardship. These are important things. These are hot evolving topics. Even if you get one or two medical students interested, that's a win. That's an absolute win. All very great advice. Um, what advice would you give to maybe some younger students that don't know what they want to go into yet? Oh, so be curious. That's the first thing. Be curious, ask a lot of questions. You know, when you go into your clinical rotations, keep an open mind and find out what's most exciting. What's, I mean, every, every specialty is going to have its bread and butter that may not be that exciting, correct? No matter what you do, whether it's primary care, cardiology, et cetera, et cetera. So Look beyond that. Look at the opportunities for growth, uh, not only as a clinician, but as a leader and academic. And the other thing I would tell people, and I say this to the fellows, is don't put limits on yourself. You know, people will put limits on you, so don't limit yourself. You know? <laughs> don't put limits. Look for new things. Look, try to strive. Ask questions. Even it's a little far-fetched. You know, as long as you show enthusiasm and that's genuine and real, most people will respond positively. Yeah, More great advice. advice. Yeah, great. I mean, I think uh, people get caught up in the glamour of certain things, right? Something's on TV or something they see. I remember when I started med school, ER just came out. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So we had so many of people in my class that wanted to be emergency room physicians. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't think you guys are really cracking chests in the ER very often. (laughs) There's always a disconnect between Hollywood and reality. (laughs) They have to make it dramatic enough to keep people interested, right? Yeah. (laughs) And they often don't wear the correct PPE on TV. so That's right. And sometimes they put the stethoscopes in their ears the wrong way, if you haven't noticed. I think think if you put one of your electronic counters on how much times they do hand hygiene, you'd probably be appalled. Correct. That too. That too. Yeah. So speaking of TV, are you watching anything fun or reading any good books right now? Yeah, so I'm reading, uh, let's start with the books. I'm a bit of a bibliophile, kind of a nerd. So I like my books right and on. I generally try to read books in English and in Spanish. You try to do two at a time. Well, not at the same time, but you know, in sequence, so to speak. Uh, so the book I'm reading in Spanish is called, uh, uh, basically in the translated, the translated title is called 
Angels with Dirty Faces, and it's basically the definitive history of Argentine soccer. So maybe not interesting to everyone, but interesting to me because I'm a soccer player and I'm from Argentina. Uh, the second book I'm reading is actually more local. It's called The Organ Thieves by Charles, Charles Jones, I believe, uh, Simon and & Schuster. And it really talks about the, what happened here at the Medical College of Virginia in 1968. They had the first Southern, or first heart transplant in the South here in 1968. The Medical College of Virginia, but there's kind of a dark history to it in which they were getting the organs or the organ, uh, you know, by unconsented African-Americans who, who were passed, passed away by different, you know, by different cause and harvesting organs. There's kind of the dark side of, of what's mm. happened here at the Medical College of Virginia over the last 175 years. So it's very informative and I think it's a, it's a, it's a good read um, on many levels. It gives you kind of a new, new respect for some of the things that have occurred here over the very cool. Yeah, interesting. Are you still playing soccer? I am. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm my kid. I'm about to turn 52 really soon. So <laughs> perhaps I'm not the most agile and nimble dude on the field, but I'm out there. I'm playing at a less competitive uh, division now. That. Yeah, you're a little younger than me. I, I, I yeah, growing up, I, I played soccer too. Before, before we moved to Nebraska, we actually lived in Germany. And so cool. it was, it was great. Uh, but then I moved here to the Midwest and, you know, people were like, what is soccer? You know, so it was a, it was a different time back, uh, back then uh, right. in the, in the early eighties. And so it, it, it kind of just didn't have the same kick. I would have loved to have continued to do it, but I don't think I could do it very much now. Maybe, maybe indoor soccer where I had to run like 10 feet. I think Dr. Rupp was still playing soccer. At least I heard it a couple of years ago with a pickup group there. I think he was. I don't know if he still is or not. He does a ton of hiking. I know that much. That, that works too. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, um, thank you for joining us. Do you have any questions for us or anything uh, that, uh, that came to mind as we talked? Well, I mean, I would love to hear the history of your podcast, how long you've been rolling now, and it seems like you're successful. So what happens next? Well, this is our 42nd episode. Yeah. And we've been dropping them about weekly. So gosh, we're coming up on almost a year. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really started with Rick during one of our meetings said, hey, I've been thinking about doing a podcast. Does anyone want to help me with that? And I raised my hand. <laughs> and about two weeks later, we recorded our first episode. So it's, a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, the idea is all Rick's though. I'll let him talk about that. Yeah, it's great. I, have, I tell people I have the easiest job in this whole thing because all I have to do is show up and talk. So because Sarah does all the work and now we've got somebody else helping us schedule people. So it's great. So just had the idea of highlighting people in infectious disease and infection control and what they do and why they do it. And also trying to just do a little bit of education along the way. Um, I think you know, the, it came about because of the pandemic, you know, but before the pandemic, I think people, you know, ID infection prevention was largely behind the scenes. Nobody knew kind of what we did. Right. And this kind of thrust us out to the forefront and also kind of politicized our, our situations a little bit, which was unfortunate because I mean, I think ID people are good people. We just want people to be well and make good decisions and things like that. And so this let, and we also got a lot of people heard our voices, saw our faces, but they don't know who we are. They just know we're up there talking about COVID, talking about wearing masks and things that they didn't really want to do or want to hear about. So this was a means to figure out, you know, we're people, 
we have interests. This is why we got into this. This is why we find it interesting. Um, and these are the things that we do on a daily basis to keep you safe, whether you're in the hospital or in the community. Uh, so I thought it would be a great thing to try to emphasize those things. That's great. Your enthusiasm, both of you, is palpable. And I think that can only uplift kind of the efforts of infection control, stewardship communities, infectious disease. That's really great. Yeah, hopefully it works as a recruitment. We're trying to get all, you know, the young people to listen and say, hey, yeah, that might be kind of cool, you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't think microbiology is cool, you don't think microbiology is cool. I tend to, to love, my favorite class was parasitology. Actually, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world yeah. when I was an undergrad. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that's not really, I mean, you have to know some of it, but you don't do that. You do lots of things that were so the breadth of infectious disease and what you can do and how you can help people is amazing. And I hope young people get interested in it and join us. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you're right. There's microbiology can be confusing and it can be very overwhelming at times, but the, the important message is you don't have to be the best microbiologist. You just have to be good enough so you understand it and you can mm -hmm. apply it on a clinical level, which is very different. And it helps you on Jeopardy or on the chaser or something. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I think another great thing that was born from this podcast is just the amount of networking that we've been able to do also. Like we were connected to you through Dr. Priya Nori. Yeah. She was on our show. Um, Fantastic. And yeah. And so uh, there's just been a lot of opportunity for networking with other infectious disease professionals around the country and, you know, really learning that we're all in the same boat and we're in this together, even though we may be on opposite sides of, of the country we all are still kind of of the same mind. It's definitely a community of infection preventionists and you know, ID doctors, epidemiologists, stewards out there. Thank you so much for connecting us this way. It's really great. Yeah. 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 Hopefully we can have you out here sometime when we're doing things like grand rounds in person again. I'll, uh, I, I, Dr. Rupp challenges me to pick somebody every once in a while. So you just made the list. Sorry. I, I apologize in advance. <laughs> well, it would be an honor. Absolutely. As long as it's not too cold. Bring me out January 15th or something. Um, okay. I can, I can work on that. It's too bad. We don't do grand rounds in the summer because we could have you out for the college world series. I think Virginia has been good in the past. Um, yeah. so that would be fun, but I, I think we pause for, uh, for the summer, but otherwise we'll get you out. Maybe we'll get you out for a weekend where there's a football game. That'd be good. Yeah. I can deal with the cold, by the way, I did go to university of Buffalo school of medicine. It's cold and snowy. So I could do it. Yeah. You might've lost your, your skin gets a little thinner though, when you move South, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah your blood definitely thins out. We need to write a paper on that. Maybe we can collaborate. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, my friend. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick and Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for this episode of dirty drinks. Don't forget to join us on Twitter in the conversation, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.